And uh, this is the 16th week we've been in this series. We're up to chapter 5 now. And uh, so if you've got your Bibles, you can take those out. Chapter 5 is where we're going to be right at the beginning. Uh, also, the sermon outlines are always available as you kind of come in the front doors. You can pick one of those up if you're a note-taking type of a person. Well, a man who took a shortcut through a cemetery uh, every day as he walked home on his way home from work happened to cut through there one night unaware that a new grave had been dug in his regular path. And he tumbled into that empty grave. For some time, he struggled to get out of the deep hole, but finally he gave up, resigned that he'd have to wait until the morning. And so he settled down. And it wasn't but about an hour later that there was a farmer out possum hunting. He came walking through that cemetery as well, and he too fell into that very same hole. The farmer began a desperate attempt to get out, unaware that there was anyone else in the grave. The first man listened to him for several minutes as he frantically tried to climb his way out. And then the first man reached over in the pitch darkness and put his hand on the farmer's shoulder. And he said, you can't get out of this grave. Well, that farmer proved that first man wrong. Oh. We are in this text today in Mark chapter 5, and we are taking a trip to a graveyard. And there we will meet a man who could be a character out of The Walking Dead or the main star of the zombie apocalypse. And I, so let me just set the scene for you for just a moment. Jesus and his disciples have just come across the Sea of Galilee where a violent storm had come up. The disciples were beside themselves. They thought that they would die. And they, of course, forgot who it was that was in the boat with them. Then they, of course, woke Jesus from his nap and you remember the rest of the story. Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. The storm immediately went away. And Mark's account at the end of chapter 4 ends this way. The disciples were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, after Jesus stilled the storm, we come into chapter 5, and it's in verse 1 that we read, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And so let's just think about this for a moment. From the fear of dying in a storm to being terrified of seeing the Lord command the wind and the waves to now an encounter with what we're going to find out is a demon-possessed man. Could the disciples be having a more difficult day? And so as we enter into this passage, it's important for us to know that the Bible declares that demon possession is a very real issue. The man is not just deranged. He is not suffering from some sort of mental illness, nor is this encounter just symbolic of evil in the world today. The Bible presents demon possession as a sober reality and that's how we should take it as well. But I like what the great author C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. He's talking about the demons. They themselves are equally pleased about 
both errors. And so today, we're going to try and investigate and avoid both these errors as we look into this text. Now, because we are talking about Satan and his demons and their influence on people in this world, recently I was talking to one of our church members, Fred Gadsden, and he shared with me a story. Uh, and I've invited him to just share a very brief testimony about a recent encounter that he had. So Fred, I'm going to invite you up here to share your story. So besides being members here at Garden Way Church, my wife and I are also senior coordinators with Restoration Ministries. And what Restoration Ministries is, is a 16-week video series that we've presented at many churches and even at homes. And I'll tell you more about that in a couple of three weeks, but today I want to share with you an experience that happened doing kind of a combination of our 45th and 46th series of doing restoration. On week nine, we talk about baptism and the importance of baptism and, and what it does. Week 10, we actually do baptisms for anybody that wants to be baptized. Well, the one class, I uh, had a gentleman that wanted to be baptized, and so week 10 came up, and I come into the church early, tried to set up the baptistry, and I couldn't get the heater or the pump to work. So I told him, well, I can baptize you in cold water today if you want, if you want the baptistry to be warm, I'll talk to the church this week and see if we can't get it fixed. I can baptize you in warmer water next week. He said waiting a week was fine. It wasn't a problem. So the next week, I called up the church, and they had somebody come out and check it out. And Friday, they called me and said not only couldn't get the, they get the pump and the heater to work, but the baptistry had drained itself. It was one of those churches that keeps the baptistry full. So there wasn't even any water for me to baptize him in. So Sunday come along and I told him, you know, Luke, I says, Satan really doesn't want you to get baptized. Because I says, now we don't even have any water to baptize you. But I says, I, we're not going to let Satan lit uh, win. I have a couple of suggestions. One of them was my Wednesday class, morning class that week was going to do, I was going to do three baptisms there. I told him, if you can come to that class, I can baptize you. So he said that was fine. He could do that. So Wednesday morning came and uh, got in the baptistry. And I said, well, somebody's got to be first. He says, I'll go ahead and go first. So he got in the baptistry. And I did, you know, the things you say before you baptize somebody. And I leaned him over. And just as he touched the water... I felt something grab my left thigh, and I thought it was him, and I looked down, and no, he's got his arms like this, and I heard something say, no, and I'm like, okay, yeah, gives me goosebumps, <laughs> and I thought, wow, that was really weird, so I finished baptizing, got him up, had a little trouble because I only had one leg to get him up with. Ed Gillespie, who is the uh, founder of Restoration Ministries there in the blue shirt, he asked me what happened. Well, I find it interesting that Satan's first contact with us was to, to install doubt. And I was already doubting what happened, so I told Ed, well, I pulled my, pulled my calf, my thigh muscle. So um, the next Sunday, meeting with Luke at the church, and uh, this guy was just angry every single week, just 
angry. And this Sunday, he wasn't angry anymore. He seemed to have a peace about him. And I asked him, I said, so you seem a lot different today. Do you, has this been like since your baptism? And he goes, I don't know what to tell you. He goes, when I got baptized, it was like a darkness was lifted off me. I don't know what happened. And I go, well, I got a pretty good idea. So I told, I told him what I had felt. And I said, I'm trying to convince myself it didn't happen, but I know that it did. So a couple of weeks later, we have graduation. When we have graduation, we always share a meal, and I invite them to invite friends to come to their graduation. And we're sitting there talking, and his friend says, Luke told me about his baptism. And I'm like, okay. He says, I want to show you something. He whips out his cell phone. He showed me this picture. He goes, enlarge it. So I did. Oh, it went away. There it is. This is a shadow of me against the wall. This shadow right here has no business being there. I think he actually got a picture of a demon leaving Luke's body. Took my leg about three weeks to get well. And, uh, boy, I will never underestimate the power of baptism. And I was right about one thing. I hadn't done anything. I was just a vessel, and I allowed God to work through me and free Luke. And he's in Arizona now, and he's actually testifying and preaching to people in Arizona. Completely different person than he started out as. So if you haven't been baptized, get baptized. It's worth it. Thank you. So as followers of Jesus, what, what is our role in a world that is infiltrated and influenced by the evil one. Well, in today's Bible passage, there is, I hope we will see, a progression of events that can help us to discern how we, as representatives of the Lord, can best deal with the evil that exists in our world. So let's take a look at this progression. And the first step of the progression begins with destruction. Let's examine the destruction that the demons were causing, leaving this man in tremendous misery. In verse 2, it says that when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, remember Mark's favorite word, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. It was still dark when Jesus landed on the shore of the cemetery. And as soon as he disembarked his boat, this wild man ran up to him. This had to be an eerie experience for the disciples, as I imagine their nerves were already frayed from the storm that they just experienced on the lake. And in Luke's account of this uh, event, he says that the man didn't have any clothes on and that he was literally, quote, driven by the demon, driven by the demon. In verses three through five, it says that no one could restrain or subdue this man. He was self-destructive. And so let's take a look at that passage. It says, he lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Here's a man that made his dwelling among the dead. 
The word there for crying literally means that he was shouting out loudly with an urgent scream or a shriek using inarticulate shouts that express a very deep emotion. Here's a man that was defiled. He was depraved and he was desperate. And I want us to remember that Satan loves to distort and destroy the image of God. He's always seeking to do that in our lives. Satan had wrecked this man and his own people couldn't reform him. His problems couldn't be solved by a social program, nor could they be, he be assisted by human intervention. Self-help programs didn't work either because he was self-destructive. Nothing could restrain him. His lifestyle was destroying him, and he never stopped crying out or cutting himself. In short, this man was hopeless. He was isolated. He was empty, and he was trapped in a downward spiral of destruction, and he needed someone to deliver him. And folks, this reminds, us of, reminds me of the world that we live in. We are surrounded by people that are influenced by the demonic, by addictions, by anger, these are traps that hold people in chains. And they're in that similar downward spiral that leads to crime, lawlessness, homelessness, and violence. That's the world that we live in. It's a world where Satan is actively at work, and it's a world that is in desperate need of deliverance. And so that's the next step in our progression, deliverance. Let's see how this tormented soul found deliverance from his destruction, beginning in verse six. This terrifying man came running up to Jesus. Can you imagine the disciples as they were sitting in the boat, as they see Jesus get out of the boat, and all of a sudden this crazed, crazy-looking man comes running at Jesus. And it says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. By the way, this shows the power and the authority of Jesus. Jesus hadn't even said a word yet, and this miserable man was on his face as if in worship before him. The man who ran from everyone else ran to Jesus. The demon in this man became greatly distressed because it knows. It knows exactly who Jesus is. Look at verse 7. And crying out with a loud, the word there is mega, mega, a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, the son of the most high God? The demon detects a dangerous opponent in Jesus. And so he cries out with a booming voice. And it's interesting that, that demons, demons are not atheists. Demons, they're, they're, their doctrine is orthodox. They know exactly who Jesus is. And they even call him by his divine name, Son of the Most High God. The demon cries out in fear because it's scared. Remember James, James tells us this in James chapter 2 and verse 19. Even the demons believe and they shudder. By the way, this is less a confession than it is a, a ploy to diminish 
the power of Jesus. You might remember a few weeks ago when we were looking at another uh, passage in in Mark about uh, a demon that I mentioned how declaring one's name was considered a a way to, to assume mastery over someone. And then the demon dared to arrogantly misuse the name of God as he tried to get his way. I adjure you. That's a word of command. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Well, Jesus recognized that the man himself was in anguish, not just mentally and emotionally, but also spiritually. And he needed deliverance. And so look at verse eight, Jesus' words. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then in verse 9, Jesus demands that the, that the demon identify himself. What is your name, Jesus asks. And the demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion, that word, refers to a, a Roman group of highly trained soldiers, numbering 6,000. That reveals that this man had an army of evil spirits inside him. Well, what happens next is a bit strange. In verses 10 through 13, the demon begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The demons didn't want to go to the abyss, and so they beg Jesus for permission to go into the pigs. And the tense here shows us that they repeatedly made this request. It was a a request over and over, a begging. And so whatever else you think about the destruction of all these pigs, what I want you to notice here is that Jesus is in charge. Jesus gives the demons permission. Jesus is always in charge. Don't ever think that Satan is more powerful than God. Don't think that he's on the same level with the Lord. Satan is a created being who can do nothing without God's permission. Well, here's a a scholarly quote I came across that I really like. This swan dive is the world's first case of deviled ham and answers the common question about whether pigs can fly. They can't. They can't swim either. That's a lot of bacon on the beach. That's a scholarly quote, of course. Well, in verse 14, we see that the the herdsmen watching over this, this group of pigs, of course, are upset about losing their pigs. And so it says they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came out to see what it was that had happened. The people in town are are curious, and so they come out to check this all out. And in verse 15, it describes their reaction. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. This had to blow their minds, don't you think? No one had been able to help this man, and now he's healed. He went from screaming and shrieking and breaking shackles to sitting there peacefully. He is now clothed and calm. Well, you would think that the people would be excited about this, but instead they become very unsettled. Look at how verse 15 ends. 
And they were terrified. They were afraid. It's interesting, isn't it? Why would they be afraid after he'd been delivered? I think it's for the same reason the disciples were terrified after the wind and the waves were still. They sensed that they were in the presence of deity. And while they were afraid of this maniacal man when he had lived a destructive life, they had gotten used to that. But now they don't know what to do when they see that he's been delivered. His transformation was so dramatic that they are filled with fear. You would think that that would cause them to ask Jesus some questions or find out perhaps how he could deliver them from their sins and their hardships that they were suffocating from. But instead, instead of being drawn to Jesus, they demand that Jesus depart. And I know that some of you have experienced something similar since you've come to the Lord. Your friends, your loved ones, they don't want you to talk about Jesus because they're not comfortable with it. Sometimes Jesus makes people uncomfortable. We see this in verse 16 and 17. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. To me, this is one of the sadder sentences in Scripture. Lots of people choose dysfunction over deliverance because they're afraid of change. Have you noticed that some seem eager to learn about Jesus, but others want nothing to do with him? You know, it's difficult to stay neutral about Jesus. You are either desirous of meeting the deliverer or you want him to depart from you. Here's a quote from one commentator that I think fits well here. He wrote, We change when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of changing. We change when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of changing. So the question that I want you to just think about for a few moments right now is, are you ready to change? Are you ready for the change that God wants to bring about in your life? You see, Jesus doesn't force himself on anyone. When he's invited, he comes. When he's received, he responds. When he's told to go away, he leaves. Many people don't have anything against Jesus. They just prefer to keep him at arm's length. That's kind of like our culture, isn't it? You can have your religion. That's fine for you. It's not my thing. So just keep it away from me. One pastor sounds a warning. He says, when Jesus knocks on the door of your heart, run quickly to let him in. Do not think that he's obliged to come back again and again. We want a gentle Jesus who keeps his nose out of our business and who will take us to heaven, but not interfere in the way that we live here on this earth. We want a Jesus who builds our self-esteem and makes us happy, but we want nothing to do with the Lord from heaven who calls us to take up our cross and follow him. You see, Jesus is all about change, from destruction to deliverance. And there's one more step in this progression that I want us to see. 
And that is deployment. Deployment. Let's consider how this delivered man was now deployed, sent out on a mission. The crowd wanted Jesus to get away from them, while this man wants to get closer to him. Look at verse 18. As he, that is Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. The man who feared the arrival of Jesus now dreads his departure. And it's interesting to me that Jesus honored the request of the people to leave them alone, but he denies the request of this disciple who wanted to spend more time with him. And I think it's because Jesus had a greater purpose for him. He was to be deployed as a man on a mission to the very people that he already knew. In verse 19, Jesus gives him his marching orders. Take a look at this. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. He was to go to his neighbors with his salvation story. You see, friends, no one is ever saved to just sit around. Now that we know, we're called to go. Once we're saved, we have a story to tell. Now, you know, sometimes we don't speak up for the Lord because we're afraid that we'll be asked questions that we can't answer. By the way, what's one of Satan's favorite techniques for God's people? Fear. Oh, you don't know enough. You'll be embarrassed. You'll embarrass them. Just be quiet. But here's an important truth. You don't have to have all the answers. In fact, if you think you have all the answers, you're wrong. I love how the man born blind that's, uh, in the Gospels in John chapter 9, a bunch of the religious leaders are coming to him and they're grilling him after he's healed. And his simple statement is so, it's so great. He says, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's what he knew. He knew that Jesus had healed him. In Psalm 66, in verse 16, the psalmist announces, Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. You see, Jesus tells us exactly what to say. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's a story any one of us in this room could tell. This man went from destruction to deliverance, and now he is fully deployed. Look at verse 20. It says, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You see, when God saves us, we are compelled and commanded to share it with others. The Decapolis that's mentioned here by Mark was a federation of 10 Greek cities. That's the places where the Gentiles lived. One man, one man was sent to share the story of his encounter with Jesus. And we read here in the text, everyone marveled, which means they were struck with astonishment. Now, surely not everyone became followers of Jesus, but at least they were introduced to the truth of Jesus, that he is the master at moving us from destruction to deliverance. 
When I was a little kid, I loved missionary Sundays in the little church I grew up in. Whenever missionaries would be traveling through, and I lived in Hawaii, so we had many missionaries traveling through from Asia, coming back to the United States. And often these missionaries would be invited to present their stories and their uh, information, their reports in place of the sermon. And there is one visit I've never forgotten. The missionaries were a married couple who had spent many years in Southeast Asia. And I'm sure that they gave an important report on the churches they planted and the baptisms that were conducted or the translations that had begun. I don't really remember any of that stuff. But what I do remember is the story they shared about a snake. One day, they told us, an enormous snake, much larger, longer than a man, slithered its way right through the front door of their simple two-room village hut. Of course, terrified, they ran out the back door and they searched frantically for a a local who might know what to do. And a machete-wielding neighbor came to the rescue, calmly marched into their hut and decapitated the snake with one clean chop. Now, to an 11-year-old boy, that's a pretty cool story. The neighbor reemerged triumphant, and he assured the, the missionary couple that the reptile had been defeated. But there was a catch, he warned them. It was going to take a while for the snake to realize that it was dead. Apparently, a, a snake's neurology and, and blood flow are such that it can take a considerable amount of time for it to stop moving, even after it's been decapitated. And so for the next several hours, the missionaries were forced to wait outside while the snake thrashed about in their hut, smashing furniture, flailing against the walls, wreaking havoc, until its body finally understood that it no longer had a head. Everything was still, and they were able to go in and remove the snake. Sweating in the heat, they said they had felt frustrated and a little sickened, but also grateful that the snake's rampage wouldn't last forever. And at some point in their waiting, they told us they had a light bulb moment. Something came to their mind, and I remember the the missionary leaning out over the pulpit, and he said, do you see it? Do you see it? Satan is a lot like that big old snake. He's already been defeated. He just doesn't know it yet. In the meantime, he's going to do some damage. But never forget that he's a goner. And so that story has stuck with me for many years. And I've come to believe that it is an accurate picture of this world that we live in. We are in a thrashing about time. I mean, look at all of the violence and the harm and the hurt that we cause ourselves and one another. And the temptation for God's people is to despair. We have to remember, though, that it won't last forever. Jesus has already crushed the serpent's head. And so we wait. As followers of Jesus, we have been delivered from death and destruction. But folks, we don't just sit around while we wait. Because we have been deployed like these missionaries I just told you about. Like that demon-possessed man in Mark 5. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. That's what we're called to do. 
And so as we close, I want to just leave you with two practical ways that you can put this passage into practice. Number one, number one, use this outline when you give your testimony. One of the best ways to tell your salvation story is to just follow the progressions of this passage. Move from destruction to deliverance to deployment. Or to put it another way, start with talking about what your life was like before you met Jesus. And then let your friends know how you got saved. And then end by celebrating how your life has been changed since you've been saved. Start where you are and tell what you know. Go and tell. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to have dozens of passages memorized. You don't have to know the Roman road or any other tract or, or material. Share your story. Go and tell what the Lord has done for you. Incidentally, because of this demon-possessed man's faithful witness, legions of people came to follow Christ. When Jesus returned to this very area later, the scriptures tell us a whole crowd of people came out to see him and that many of them believed in Jesus. The Decapolis became a center of Gentile Christianity for many years to come. And it came about through the impact of one man telling his story. Don't forget that when Jesus went to that side of the lake, it was for one man. He showed up there through the storm, through the events, met this man, cast out his demons, sent him on his way with his mission, and Jesus and his disciples got back in the boat and left. They went there for that man. And that man made a difference. One man, one woman on mission for Christ can accomplish much. So don't just sit there. Tell your story. That's practical step number one. And number two, I want to remind us all that today can be your day for deliverance. No one could help this man, and he couldn't help himself either. It was Jesus who gave him freedom, and he can break the chains that bind you as well. Nothing is too hard for him, and there is no sin beyond his power. And so if you are in bondage to some form of sin or an addiction or a habit that is dragging you down, Jesus wants you to have deliverance, and he wants it to start today. Like this man, you and I live among the dead. We, too, were once dead in our trespasses and sin. We were shackled by sin and by Satan sabotaging our lives, and that's why we needed a Savior you ask him, Jesus will enter into the mess of your life, no matter how bad it is, and he will set you free. That is the truth. That is the reality. In the midst of our destructive behaviors, we can ask him to deliver us, and when he does, we will be deployed, and thus we will fulfill our purpose in life. And so if you're struggling to find your purpose in life, if you're a follower of Jesus, your purpose is nothing less than to share your story, your story of deliverance. Share it with as many as you can. 
And if you've not yet experienced the deliverance that only Jesus can bring, I hope that you will not leave this building today until you talk to me or to someone that invited you, someone that you know. Let's talk more about how you too can reach that point of deliverance so that you might have the privilege of being deployed. Let's pray together. Father, we ask your blessing on our day and on our week ahead. Father, as we leave this place on mission, Father, help us to clearly see through the eyes of Jesus the people that you are bringing into our lives, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our relatives. Father, we are surrounded by people that are in desperate need of deliverance. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will convict us powerfully to not just sit on our hands, to not shy away from speaking the truth, but to boldly share our stories. Father, bless us this day as we leave ready to obey your calling. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to conclude our time together this morning with the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is Jesus' way of reminding us of our deliverance. Isn't that great? He paid the price that we couldn't. He made it possible for us to experience true deliverance, forgiveness, and grace because of his sacrifice on the cross. And so as we share together the bread and the cup, they remind us that Jesus paid it all. What a great privilege we have. And what a blessing it is to remember that as we share together as the family of God. And so as the music plays, we invite you to make your way to one of the four tables. There's two here at the front, two at the back. You can stay at the table and take the the bread and the cup. You can take it back to your 